and welcome to the Creative Soul Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Van Doren, and in this podcast, I talk with some of the most creative and inspiring people that I know. From hearing about their process to what holds them back from creating, routines and rituals, to the intersection between creativity and spirituality, you'll hear from writers, actors, singers, dancers, musicians, painters, multi-passionate creatives, and anyone else who considers themselves a creative soul. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Creative Soul Podcast. So excited to have you here today and to share this episode with you this week with our guest, Albert Flynn DeSilver. So Albert is an internationally published poet, writer, speaker, and workshop leader. His latest book, Writing as a Path to Awakening, based on his popular workshop by the same name, is published by Sounds True. He also has a memoir called Beamish Boy. His work has also appeared in over 100 literary journals, and he was the Marin County, California's very first poet laureate from 2008 to 2010. I'm so honored to have Albert on the podcast today. I have the honor of reading his book, Writing as a Path to Awakening, and fell in love with it because it's so in the style of writing books that I love to read, similar to Natalie Goldberg, who we talk about in this podcast, but who is one of my favorite writing teachers, writing influences. And his book reminded me of that and just talks so perfectly about writing as a path to spirituality and writing as a path to discovery, which is so much about what my work is about that I really found a lot of resonance with Albert and his ideas. So in this episode, we talk about spirituality arising from being in motion, this idea of movement and embodiment as essential parts of your creative practice. We talk about why reading is so important for writers his writing process, what it looks like, what it looks like when he's working on a specific writing project, like a book or memoir, or if he's just writing as therapy, as processing. We talk about his meditation practice and the influence that meditation has had on his writing practice and how meditation and creativity really go hand in hand. So this episode is full of all of the ideas and the topics that I love to marinate on. And it was just such a blessing to be able to sit in the same space with Albert and feel and, you know, reap the benefits of his decades long practice and really what it looks like in in someone who can really embody that practice. So truly an honor to sit down with Albert. And so without further ado, let's dive into this episode with Albert Flynn DeSilver. Well, hello, Albert. Thank you so much for coming on the Creative Soul Podcast. Yeah, delighted. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So I want to start off with the first question I ask everyone when they come on, and that's what is currently fueling your creative soul? (laughs) Currently, gee whiz. You know, the first thing that's popping into my head is, is actually mountain biking, which is sort of always fed my creative soul. But I'm actually, I'm working on a project right now, kind of, it's a little bit out of my normal sort of creative writing mode. And it's about the spirit of mountain biking and being in nature and and how spirituality kind of can arise through being in motion on a on a bicycle. So that's really fueling a lot of my 
creative energies right now. So yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm, that sounds so exciting. I love that. And even what you just said about spirituality, a rising being in motion. Will you talk more about that? What is what does that feeler look like to you? Well, I think it's it's sort of interesting. You know, you, we think of activities like mountain biking. You know, there's a culture, mostly kind of a a dude culture around it. I mean, it's becoming much more. There's a whole evolving culture of of women in in mountain biking, which is so cool and exciting. And and I think it has this this image of you know adre- the adrenaline junkie and and you kind of thrashing a lot of the, <clears throat> a lot of the videos and that certain element of the culture, are, you know, loud, like thrashing <laughs> sort of punk, even heavy metal music. And that's not really what I'm talking about. You know, I'm, I'm more of the, the sort of meandering through the forest kind of person, you know, and being, being embodied, you know, that's a huge piece of the, the creative journey for me is like reconnecting to that body as source as source of our creativity not just like me and my brilliant ideas but but being a fully embodied emotional entity that can you know drum up the courage to reflect that back to the world in you know through language and writing and so i think any any activity whether it's mountain biking or yoga or surfing or you know i just love you know being in nature skiing of course mm-hmm. but being in nature in motion in nature is just like this this magical thing and of course there's just different rates of doing that hiking a big backpacker for years and so swimming you know swimming in high remote alpine lakes waterfalls all this stuff is this is this feeds our creative soul Yeah, totally. It's so funny that you kind of started off with that because I was just looking at, you know, I have notes written down, just like jotted everywhere whenever a thought comes to me. And I had written down recently, like, what are activities that use the whole body? And I wrote down things like yoga, swimming, surfing, because, you know, when I think about writing as a practice, you know, something that I've not struggled with, but just this idea that writing, you know, how can we make writing an embodiment practice? Because in a way you're not using your whole body, you're using your brain, your thoughts, and maybe your hand, your fingers typing, or maybe speaking into a phone, if if that's how you want to record your thoughts, but you're not really using everything else. And so yeah, how to pair a writing practice with an embodiment practice to get that creativity flowing and moving through. Yeah, well, and that's why I, you know, so much, I wrote the book, Writing as Path to Awakening, and awakening means awakening in the body. Mm. And so I'm often, you know, meditation is a huge piece of, of the practice. And that's, and and I was trained in Vipassana meditation as kind of my core practice, which is all about embodiment. You know, it's all about like, delving into the sensations of the body, delving into heart practice, working with the emotions and the energies, the sensations, and and being as present as possible for that. And I think the best writing comes out of that, you know, comes out of that courageous spelunking, as it were, into the body. And I have been known to, to attend lots of yoga 
conferences. I love, I'm not like a huge yoga practitioner myself, but there's so much crossover between, you know, embodied writing and conscious movement. And so I'm a huge advocate of, of conscious movement and, and allowing the writing to come out of that. And actually, I'm, we were talking off camera about Berkeley and uh, I'm doing a collaborative, my first live in-person event is happening this fall with a yoga studio in Berkeley. And so we're doing a live event down in Green Gulch here in Northern California, which is a Zen center. And so I'm, you know, I'm working with a yoga practitioner, Saraswati, and she's going to be doing the yoga. And then we're going to be writing straight out of those embodied practices. And, and that's like, I think that's where the magic happens creatively. Totally. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. And yeah, I, I was telling you again before off camera that I read your book, Writing as a Path to Awakening, and just fell in love with it because it's so in alignment with what my work is on this planet, what this podcast is about, the intersection of spirituality and creativity. And you talk about writing as a spiritual practice. And I wrote down, I like underlined so many things in the book. But one thing I wanted to mention was you said, when writing is a spiritual act, your primary intent is unity consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I just love that because I think allowing ourselves to come in oneness, whether that's with our body, whether that's with our breath, whether that's with spirit, whether that's with this source consciousness, I think writing can be that vehicle to channel that through. And so, yeah, I'd love to just hear more about how you got into writing, how, how has writing become a spiritual practice for you? When did you first discover writing as a spiritual practice versus just, you know, those things that they teach you in school? I, I think it's a unique perspective to really, to really hone in on. And yeah, I, this, this, your book is going to be like my little writing Bible for many years to come. And even when I read it, it came at a perfect time because I was in a bit of a lull in my writing practice. You know, I've been practicing writing for many years and, and I, and I like to call it writing practice because it really is a practice, but I was going through a period where I, the words weren't coming and I was doing a lot more painting and then reading your book, it kind of reinvigorated that creative spirit within me. So that's a lot, but yeah, I would just love to hear kind of how your writing practice began. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That completely warms my heart. And it is the exact reason I wrote that book, you know, and it's it's sort of my whole, how they say in French, raison d'etre. Mm. And so I just love hearing you say that. And thank you. I think that if I go way back, in terms of where this hall came from, I was at, and I love, I love telling this story because it's it's kind of this, it's an origin story that took me a while to realize, but I was on a photography journey. And in high school, I, I got my first camera and I went on this trip to Europe. And, and then I worked a little bit on the, I didn't know what to do with myself in high school. I was, you know, I was an alcoholic. I was super grief stricken by my childhood. I hadn't dealt with a lot of just abuse stuff and, and addiction. But I did start to find some little window. I was a terrible student. You know, I was not, a, I wasn't writing. I wasn't interested in writing. I didn't think I had any capacities really whatsoever, but I did kind of find this window through photography. Miss Toth was my photography teacher and she she kind of was like, yeah, this photography thing is cool and you can take pictures of trees and you can take pictures of that. And so I got into the photography thing and, and I worked on the yearbook a little bit. And then college, they were like, what do you want? What do you major in? What do you want? I was like, can I major in taking pictures? 
<laughs> there was this whole thing. Yes, you can do that. It's called a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And so I did photography as an undergrad. And then after college, I worked, you know, I was painting houses and running around trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I thought, God, help me. I'm going to go back to school. And so I, I applied to the Art Institute in San Francisco and, and I sent in a portfolio of photographs I had taken and, and they accepted me. And there I went, but I was still, I was young. I was still flailing. I still, you know, dealing with addiction and the abuse stuff. And one night I, I was sent to a poetry reading at the, the Cowell Theater in San Francisco. And, and I had a teacher at the Art Institute that we all had to kind of go through Bill's class with Bill Berkson, who's an art historian and art writer. And turns out he was also a poet. And, and he just sort of sent me to this reading one night. And I wasn't into poetry at the time, you know, but I didn't have anything going on. I was like, oh, whatever. I'll just, you know, take a break from the photo lab and I'll go check out this read. Well, it turns out it was the, the launch reading for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. It was like this huge deal. And there are all these incredible poets there. And I'll never forget the editor, Paul Hoover, was reading. He read a quote from, from one of the the, the the writers in the anthology, Jack Spicer, who was this legendary poet from the 1950s. He was a, a Berkeley Renaissance, known as the Berkeley Renaissance poet, that which kind of came out of the, the beat generation sort of was born out of that. Anyways, there's this line from one of Spicer's poems that goes, unbind the dreamers, poet be like God. And I was like, wow, that's it. You know, there's a sort of like electric moment where there was this like spiritual embodiment thing coming from language that was somehow transcendent, you know, it was somehow beyond even photography for me. And I just felt like I wanted to do that. Like, that's the thing that I really wanted to do. So I got super inspired that night and bought the book. And then it just kind of, it snowballed from there. Mm. Wow. Okay. So did you start writing after that or? Yes. Yeah. So I brought my little art book. I had an art journal that I kind of kept little notes for ideas, photography ideas, but I started writing what would eventually become poems. They weren't, they were sort of scraps of words and ideas. And, you know, I, Bill started leaving Xerox copies of out of print poetry books, kind of classics from the New York school and the beat generation in my, in my mailbox. And I would gobble those up and I just started really training myself, you know, through reading to get into this poetry mode. And yeah, it just kind of, it became a little bit of a, an obsession. Mm. And my whole creative life took a turn from the photographic world to the, the language world. Mm. I love actually this connection between photography and poetry, because I feel like they are different mediums of expression, but they're the same thing. You know, if you're taking a photo of a tree, you could also describe that photo with words and create that picture with words. And you mentioned reading too. And, and something I also underlined in your book was, uh, I think it was maybe in the month February or January, but talking about reading as a form of like hunting and gathering, which I thought was such a cool <laughs> metaphor because I had never really thought of it that way. And I think a lot of people who love to write also love to read and maybe that's where it all started. And I know when I was growing up, reading was like my life. I, I you know, I read so many books and, and did, really discovered and explored the world in that way. But yeah, I just loved the way that you were able to frame reading as kind of 
this metaphor for hunting and gathering. So will you talk a little bit more about what that means and how we can kind of use that as we're continuing to read and explore the world of language and writing? Yeah, well, so what I love to say is that writing is reading and reading is writing. They're not, you know, we think of them as, as totally separate activities, but ultimately to be, you can't become a good writer or a great writer without reading. Mm. And reading really nourishes the, the whole writing practice. And, you know, and as a, as a writer, you read differently than just as a, as a reader, you know, as a, like my, my wife is an amazing reader. She reads tons of books and, and she's always reading a book, but she reads them to get into the story. You know, she reads them for kind of imagination and entertainment on a, on a certain level, which is beautiful and amazing. But when you're a writer, you're reading at this whole other level, right? I mean, you're reading for, for entertainment and inspiration, right? And, and to, to be born into a story and to, experience revelation through a story and all of that stuff but you're also really I mean this is what I teach and what you should be doing if you want to expand as a writer is like really getting in there and reading into the lines you know really seeing like oh what did they do here how are they weaving these paragraphs together how is the story evolving through each thread of language and, you know, going from even from that big picture plays all the way down into the, the sentence, you know, reading a beautiful sentence. What makes, you know, we ask as a writer, we ask what makes a beautiful sentence and we go back word by word and see how is that done? So we're sort of almost like deconstructing and analyzing on a certain level. I do I have a whole video about about this on the YouTube channel about, you know, reading these different levels of reading. I talk about this in the book as well, these different levels of reading and how it is different for a, a writer. So, and uh, yeah, I don't really, it's funny as you're saying the hunting and gathering thing, I don't remember writing that, but that's, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, right? Like as a, as a, because as a, as a writer, you're, uh, you're, you have to be excited and impassioned and delighted by language, right? And so it's sort of like you are, and it, you can't have a, a total dazzling poetic line every single line. I mean, in a poem, maybe you can, but like in a story, you've got to, you have to have some of the sentences working to carry the story along, right? Mm -hmm. And to, to set up the scenes and all of that. So you have to sort of sprinkle them about in an interesting way. And so I guess it's a little bit about, it is hunting and gathering, right? You're hunting and gathering language as a, as a, as a reader. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, it's funny that you even said like, oh, I don't remember writing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, did I, did I interpret that in a different way? But I think that also speaks to the relationship between writer and reader and yes. something that you maybe have written and that maybe I interpreted it in my own lens is a really cool thing of just that reciprocal relationship of how you're kind of creating that together. So maybe that wasn't your original intention or maybe it was, but I took it as something else. So I think that's a cool thing that happens anytime you're reading and engaging in someone's work. Yeah, absolutely. And I, this hasn't happened to me so much, but you know, I've heard other colleagues and, and writers talk about this, you know, there'll be a reading and someone will, in the audience will, will quote them or, or they'll like, they'll reflect back a scene that didn't even happen in their, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in their story or their work. 
and that that there is this projection that happens right when yeah. we we come to a new story and that's like that's an interesting liminal gap but it, it's more of a not so much maybe a gap but a conversational thread that happens between writer and reader that's super interesting yeah yeah I'm curious I on this podcast I love to talk to like creatives, artists, writers about their specific process, because I think everyone's mm. process can be so unique. And because I think creativity can be this, I think of it as like this elusive, sometimes mysterious thing that sometimes, you know, we can kind of be off in the forest on our, on our own of our own creativity and trying to like gather the pieces ourselves. And it, it's nice to hear from other people, you know, like what, what do they do? And, and is there a step-by-step -step process that you go about? But yeah, kind of just curious about what your current writing routine looks like. Like, do you get up and write every day? Is there a certain time of day that you write? And when you are writing a book, such as writing as a path to awakening or this new book, this new project that you're working on about mountain biking, what does that look like? Like, what does that entail? And how do you get from step point A to point B to all the way to finished book in a, you know, that, that the readers can then engage with? What does that process look like? Whew. Well, how <laughs> much time do we have? <laughs> That's a, I'll just touch on a couple of different aspects of it. For me, it's a little bit of a, a scrappy evolution in terms of, of process, but, and it depends on the project. Right. So the poetry, my poetry process looks very different than my fiction process. And since those are kind of extremes, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll dive in with those, but you know, the poetry is much more kind of organic. It's, it's really about sort of settling into a, a particular idea and reflecting on that idea, maybe doing a little bit of research and reading around that idea and, and then just starting to 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 work with images and I always write by hand so I I have blank page I'm a fan of blank page perfect bound notebooks that's mm. that's what gets me going that's what I'm devoted to and so I think you it begins with your tools right everyone has to have their tools that they're comfortable with I mean Natalie Goldberg says that well don't even think about that don't get hung up in like the tools just get a scrappy cheap notebook from the dollar store and just sit down and shut up and just do it. <laughs> I tend to be a little bit, I mean, I don't have that, that challenge. You know, I, I tend to have a lot of ideas. And so I can, you know, I can choose my little, my pens, my pilot precise pens that I like to work with. And, and uh, these blank page notebooks, because I never, you know, sometimes I want to turn the notebook horizontal, sometimes it's vertical. And I like to have the space of the blank open page to just let the ideas like, so the poetry is often just beginning with a, a, an idea, some sort of a general framework for me. So for example, I'm, I started this poetry project a million years ago on a, after a trip to England to Hadrian's Wall, which was a, a wall that was built in, in AD 120 around, you know, during that, that decade of uh, the Roman Empire. And they built this wall across England. I didn't know much about it. And it's this famous old wall that basically bifurcates the, the entire island. And, uh, and I just became fascinated. We got to hike along this thing and I started doing a bunch of research. I was like, oh my God, there's a, there's, there's a poem here. And so that's how that kind of began. And it's still in process. I got to this whole sort of completed state. I was actually going to publish a chapbook this year from that project. 
And I realized that because there's so much historical stuff and there's a lot about empire and gender and uh, colonialism, I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> I have to revisit all of this stuff because there's, you know, I was trying to tie it in too when all this political stuff around the Southern border mm. came about with, I won't even utter the name, but <laughs> the former president and, and, uh, and the, the, all this stuff around walls. And so it became very thematic around walls. And, you know, walls, in some ways, things have not changed. You know, there's still a, a, a barbaric aspect of humanity that, that wants to put up barriers between mm. things. And then there's also, I won't get into it, but anyway, so that's sort of how that, that project came to be. Now, on the other extreme, I'm working on a novel project that's, that's a huge research-based project. It's a it's a fictionalized autobiography and memoir. So that took a lot of research about this, this linguist and anthropologist from the 1920s, teens and 20s in California. And so I spent a lot of time, my process was really focused in on, on research. Um, all of his papers were at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And so I got to go back and read his journals from the 1920s and 30s and do all this research and, and just started with note taking, you know, just writing notes and, and reading some of his story. There's like different scraps of, of incongruent stories about his life that started kind of coalescing and coming together. And then I started writing into those, those stories as if I were that character he never really he wrote a little bit from the first perspective from the first person but not like entirely so anyways that was a big experiment and yes when I'm working on a project I'm writing pretty much every day I'm writing in the morning that's my sweet spot early hours you know 5 30 to 9 30 or 10 really and uh, and often setting goals, you know, setting a vision for a word count to get through that, that as Annie Lamott would have it, that shitty first draft. Not so much with when it comes to poetry, because you're not, you're not accumulating so much material, right, for poetry. It's not really about that. It's more about compression and, and condensing things. But for a memoir project, a novel, book of essays, I set a boundary. I set a time frame. I'm like, I want to crank out a bunch of words. I really want to get a handle on what this thing wants to be. Mm. And so I, I focus on generating a lot of material early on. Mm. So. Yeah. I'm curious, like for you, because I think a lot of, you know, journaling and like writing as therapy and writing as discovery versus writing for a specific project and doing, you know, research and writing as a character and writing for storytelling for you, do you find that, you know, do you still need to have this practice of like a journaling practice, so to say, or kind of a, a processing practice or writing as a processing practice? What does that look like for you? And yeah, how does that work when you are writing specifically for a project? Yeah, I see them as very different modalities of writing. I traditionally have not been a big journaler because I've always been involved in in various writing projects. And I kind of, my goal has always been to, to, to get that kind of emotional stuff out through the poem or through the essay or through the, the novel or whatever, the memoir, etc. And uh, lately I've been journaling more, interestingly enough. 
And, and so it's, it's fun to think about that. What are those different modes and how do they, they serve each other? I think there's a lot to be said for that, that process of getting the, the, the emotional stuff out onto the page and really kind of processing how we're feeling in a, in any given day or moment in regards to relationship to self and relationship to spirituality, relationship to earth and, you know, money and fight career and all that stuff. And just being able to kind of let that out, but they are different, right? They're different modalities. They're different. They're different states of creative mind, as mm. it were. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it makes me think because I know you have a very dedicated meditation practice. And I'd love to just hear more about that relationship with your meditation practice and your writing practice and how do they inform the other? Well, the meditation is is all about re-entering the field. And what I mean by the field, I mean the creative field, the the field of of, of infinite possibility. You know, that the, 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 the nature of the universe is that, that, that's something come from nothing. <laughs> and what is that nothingness? I think a lot of us, you know, we are seduced by, sorry, I'm trying to get out of the sunlight. <laughs> we're, we're seduced by the material world, particularly in the West, right? We're very consumed by the shiny object syndrome and all the stuff out there. And yet there is this underlying, in my experience, I think people have to find out for themselves, but in my experience, there is this, this reality of, of, of nothingness, of spaciousness, of, of divine substance, if you will, of which everything arises. Like where, where was Albert before October 2nd, 1968? Like, what, what is that? <laughs> you know, you start asking those questions and not answering them through the rational logical mind but just sitting with those questions and things open up in a really interesting way there there becomes this you lose this attachment to a very specific idea you have about yourself this is again this is my experience this is also what some ancient traditions a lot of ancient traditions around the world teach particularly buddhism which i don't like to talk about in terms of a religion because i don't it's, i don't believe it is a religion in that it's a path. It's a path to waking up to a larger reality. And so meditation is that return. It's that practice. And we were, you were talking about practice earlier. And I think this is writing is a practice. Meditation is a practice. Meditation becomes a practice only because we are so conditioned into thinking mind that we have to go back and remind ourselves, oh, there's something else going on here. There's something beyond thinking mind that is beingness, that is reconnecting to the heart of compassion, of loving kindness, of creativity itself. And all creativity, in my experience, comes from the inside out. So meditation is this invitation for us to go back to that creative source again and again and again, and know that we're never lacking, mm. right? There's never a shortage of creativity, of ideas, of wisdom, of knowledge, of abundance. Hmm. It appears oftentimes <laughs> that out there that there is certain lack because of that conditioned experience and the, the cultural conditioning. And there's a kind of a hypnosis that happens based on, on what we consume, you know, you know, through the news or whatever, you know, the, the, 
the the world, as it were, is there and the news media is always just focused on the explosions, <laughs> you know, the death and mayhem, the disease and the end of the world. Ah, the sky is always falling. But when you look at the actual percentage of things that are unfolding in a beautiful way and the things in the world that are, you know, the ways people are helping each other and the ways things are evolving in a beautiful manner and people are, are, are you know, working together to, to make better communities. It's, it's, way, it's way bigger than the noise. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a matter of attention, right? Where do we place our attention in, in any given moment? Mm, yeah, I love that it's, it all comes from inside out. And this idea of abundance versus scarcity. And I think, you know, a lot of people I think can think like, oh, I'm not creative or, oh, I don't have any ideas. Or maybe you are working on a specific project, but you get stuck and you don't know where to go next. What do you do when you get stuck? Or what do you do when you feel, if there are some lulls in your creativity and you don't feel creative, you don't feel inspired, mm-hmm. what are what are ways you navigate that, those moments and periods? I do nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> And, you know, we have one of the, the components of our community and our, our weekly programming is, is meditation for writers. It's specifically for writers. And, and I always like to invite that. It's like, oh, we've gathered today to do absolutely nothing together, <laughs> and which is true. And so when I, you know, when I am stuck or I am blocked, it's, it's very rare that, that that happens. But when it does, I just know that I need to to, to do nothing, basically. Or if I'm going to do something, then I'll, it'll be a something on my bicycle. So I'll go ride my bike or I will go immerse myself in water, preferably cold water. And, you know, I'll swim and reconnect to the earth. Um, That's, that's the most beautiful thing. I remember being on a, on a retreat once in a silent retreat, and I was completely freaked out. You know, I was like three or four days into this silent retreat and my head was just going and I was super like, there was just a lot of anxious anxiety energy coming up. And I just did not know what to do with myself. It's two in the morning and I'm like pacing around, like trying to drink as much chamomile tea as I can possibly (laughs) consume. And nothing was working until I went into this. I wandered down this road and we happened to be in the Santa Cruz mountains. And there's this little grove of redwood trees. And I just started breathing and connecting with the trees, you know, and talking to the trees and breathing with the trees and asking the trees to, to hold me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the trees, the sun, the winds, the elements, they're always there for us. So being in nature, taking a step out of the, the human world of chitter, 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 chatter is always a healing response. Yeah, I totally agree. I was thinking recently about just the cyclical nature of nature and the fact that our modern day society doesn't honor that cyclical nature and the fact that we're constantly encouraged to push, to produce, to create, to grow. And I I heard this originally on a podcast from someone else, but I was really ruminating on this idea that well, the only thing in nature that constantly pushes, you know, that, that constantly creates and produces and grows is cancer. And so uh, for us to be able to expect that from ourselves is just, 
not healthy. It's, it's not sustainable. And that really just spoke with me because it's like, yeah, nature, nature doesn't, you know, the, the trees don't create flowers all year. The trees create flowers for maybe a day or a week if we're lucky. And then, you know, they're, they're back to their cyclical nature. So I think that's really important to remember for us as creative beings, because we can't expect ourselves to constantly be creating, especially when we have that drive to create and we're inspired to create, but to really honor, honor those moments of stillness. And I love that just advice of just do nothing and it's okay to do nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have a whole thing as we, we, when we teach around editing of this period of curing, you know, allowing the work to just cure and just to, to be, and to, to take a step away, to let it be, to put it to bed as it were you know, metaphorically. And I had one of my students recently, she's so creative that she, she literally made like a little bed for her manuscript. She, she took this picture of her manuscript in like this little bed with a pillow. And it was so funny and so cute, but that's like, that's it. You know, you can't, you would, part of us wants to obsess on it and figure like, oh, we can figure this out and we can keep kind of hammering away. But what happens when we let go yeah. and we let silence and stillness just be, you know, in my experience, we tend to find a lot more insight and revelation happens. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying when you were talking about your project and I, and I had a question come up and I know Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in big magic, but this idea of how do we know which ideas to pursue or how do we know which projects to pursue? And how do you know when that's, because I think sometimes I, you know, like you have a lot of ideas, but we'll sometimes get tripped up and of like, well, which one is the right one to pursue now? Or, you know, which one am I most passionate about that I can dedicate all this time and research to? So how do you know, like, which one is the one and, and what to do next and all that sort of thing? Yeah, again, I think that it comes back to the self-reflection and spending time in silence and really trusting that intuitive knowing. The As Ajahn Chah, one of these great Vipassana teachers used to say, trust the one who knows, not the one who knows like intellectually who's trying to control the situation, but that internal heart knowing, like come back to that and see where am I, where am I repeatedly inclined you know, where is there, there that, that sort of spark, that energy, that aliveness and trust, just go into it, go for it and, and, and follow that energy thread until it peters out mm. until it just doesn't seem to, to have the spark. And it could be that you run into a dead end and that's okay. That's part of the journey. Mm. You know, I've abandoned many a project and, and then I just can sort of pick up and, and revisit what has the spark and the interest and mm. uh, and it, it's sort of like this cumulative thing i just kind of keep coming back like oh yeah that that mountain bike thing is really it just keeps gnawing at me i think i'm going to go for that you know i also have a book of essays that i'm really excited about about addiction and so can i make space to kind of do both but in different modes right like so i get to a certain point in a manuscript where it just needs to cure and sit for a few weeks and then I can go and work on another project. And so it's just kind of like this dance, but I think it, it's it's tuning into that intuition is super, super important. Mm, yeah, I love that. And for some reason that made me think of, do you find that 
certain things like come back around like throughout your life if maybe you had an idea when you were 10 or an idea when you were 20 like do you do you find these things kind of come around full circle and and things that you never expected to to come around kind of come around and and you can see that like thread being pulled throughout your life how all of those different steps were were just necessary steps in the journey yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I think about, I did think about some family stories, hmm. you know, years and years ago when I was writing pretty much exclusively poetry. And at some point I had this sort of inclination like, oh yeah, I wonder what that would be like to write prose, you know, and, and to have that little spark of thought around some family stories and family histories. And that of course came from in reading other writers and, and hearing how how stories came to them and a lot of times we have like these amazing family histories that we may or may not have have you know taken time to dive into but when you start researching them you know it can really set your imagination wild and that and that's what happened for me and and so I started taking a little bit of notes about some family history stuff and a, a character that was sort of based on a half-brother and, and partly based on my father and partly based on my grandfather. And, and it sort of turned into this amalgam character. And, and over the year, and I, and I, at one point I, I wrote into a story, super messy, super scrappy. You know, I don't know. I wrote maybe like 30 or 40 pages by hand and just put it aside in a drawer for a long time. And, and then eventually I got this inclination to have someone type it up. For me, it felt like too overwhelming to type up. So I was like, I hired someone, a friend to type it up. And, and then I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, here it is. Here's some, here's some bits to work with. And eventually over, you know, like a seven or eight year period, that became my first novel. Wow. And, and, and then that novel is, is still not published. And so we're, I don't know, 12, 15 years into this. I don't know what will happen with, I got an agent for that novel. It feels good to me, but maybe it's my warm-up novel, mm. you know, and, and I just have to let that be the experience with that. But I think that's one example of sort of allowing a, a thread to evolve and expand over time, not knowing where it's going to go. Totally. Yeah. It's that element. It's, it's how the creative practice becomes spiritual because right. you don't know where it's going to lead and you do have to kind of surrender to it and trust that, you know, maybe that leads to your other novel or maybe that leads to it being published. We don't know. It's not up, it's not up to us in a sense. So I think that's cool to have those examples mm -hmm. of, of just what that looks like. Yeah. And you mentioned Liz Gilbert and she does have this thing in, in Big Magic about like, if you don't take action on a particular idea, then that idea will go drift off and find somebody else. So there, there is, I love that notion too, that don't ignore, you know, a, a vital idea because it will, it, it will go find somebody else to, to invite it. And just to, kind of also trusting that whole notion that there is, that there's this field, you know, it comes back to this idea of the field and that we're all sort of tapping into it and, and noticing these little threads and sort of pulling them towards us as we are awakened to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about you as a teacher because mm. yeah, I'm curious what, 
what inspired you to teach writing and, and even your book writing as a path to awakening, you know, it's really a, it's kind of like a writing manual in a way. And so, and I know you teach workshops and all of that. So what led you to want to start teaching versus just writing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it goes back quite a long way. I was after grad school, I had this, this poetry passion and I was just kind of all consumed in reading that anthology, that Norton anthology, and then getting the books by individual poets and kind of just learning this whole world of poetry. And, and I remember there's, and I, I didn't really have a lot of work at the time. I was in my mid to late twenties and I had a friend, I needed a summer job. And I had a friend who worked at a private school here north of San Francisco. And, and she was like, Hey, you know, there's a summer program that we have and they're looking for teachers. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So I went to go talk to the, the head of the summer program. And, and he said, he basically asked me, this was really kind of random and, and weird, but he said, well, what do you want to teach in our summer program? Because they had kind of an open curriculum. And I said, well, you know, I'm really into this poetry thing. I'd love to teach poetry. And he's like, well, let's do it. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and I had no teaching experience. You know, I didn't know what I was, I didn't even have poetry like experience. I didn't, you know, I'd only been doing this for like a year or something. And so I like ran to the library and I started looking up all these books, like how to teach poetry. <laughs> and I basically kind of winged it this first year and it, but I loved it. I love being with these kids. Like I realized I didn't have to do that much. I sort of had to present some, some poems I was passionate about. And these kids were already just like super great. They were like seventh graders, sixth and seventh graders. And they were just into it, you know, and they were just like, well, I've got an idea. And, blah, blah, blah. and so it was this invitation and this mutual kind of interest and compassion for, for writing, for creativity, for the higher self, as it were. And then I learned about the, the California Poets in the Schools program. Mm. And, and I realized, oh, this is amazing. Like the, they basically, the whole premise was that they take professional working poets, practicing poets, they bring them into classrooms and they invite kids to write poetry. Mm. And it wasn't about teaching. I mean, there's a little bit about teaching, you know, what is poetry and the history and, you know, but it wasn't this thing that traditionally like, teachers made you recite and, and memorize poems and nobody liked that really. I mean, some people liked it, but, but this was more like, oh, hey, you're a creative genius and here's this incredible medium. Let's play with language and words and see what's going on in your heart, mm. you know? And that became super exciting to me. And because it was this whole experience of discovery, like, what can I learn from these kids, these like brilliant genius kids that don't get an opportunity to express themselves, right? And so that that was really the origins of the teachings. Mm, that's so cool. Yeah, I loved the chapter when you talked about working with kids in schools and just, yeah, the creative ideas that kids have and how connected they are to their creativity. And I think we can learn so much from them, just observing them because I know that the world squashes that out of us as we get older and older. So it's important to stay connected to that inner child and that spirit of the inner child. Exactly. Well, and this is what I, I teach a lot of the, the same approach to my adult students now. You know, it was really born out of that, that joy and that excitement and that, that creative spark returning to that. And I think meditation is really that practice of, of returning to the child 
like wonder that mm. we tend to lose as we get older. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I'm, I kind of want to, I feel like we've been talking about this this entire time, but I want to, you know, just hear in your own words, what is creativity? What, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> what is creativity? You know, creativity is presence. I think ultimately in a word it's presence because creativity is happening all around us all the time in this moment. You know, right now you and I having this conversation, creativity is happening. It's not something that we have to go get over there out there. It's, it's something that's within us all the time. Like we are not, we think of ourselves as static beings, but really we're just always in motion. We're always evolving. There's, there's creative things happening. We can't even see or smell or taste or hear half of it, a quarter of it, a 10th of it. I don't even know what the stats are, but (laughs) so creativity is presence. It's, it's awakening. It's energy. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, as we're wrapping up, I love to share creative resources on this podcast. So I'd love to ask you if there's any books or anything really that you're interested in or inspired by, or that you'd recommend to anyone, whether that's about writing, whether that's about creativity, anything that has kind of helped you along your path that we can get excited about. And we'll definitely link your book and all of your books too. But yeah, anything that you want to share with us? Oh, gee whiz. I mean, there's a zillion. (laughs) Hard to pick one. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to pick one. I mean, we, we talked about Liz Gilbert, Creative Magic is such a great book. You know, it really depends on where people are inclined. You know, the, the poetry journeys are so many great poetry books. Mary Oliver has a great poetry book, Mm. you know, Natalie Goldberg, all these, all these people I'm reading a lot about essays right now. So I'm reading people like Terry Tempest Williams and Patchett. I, you know, there's, those are a couple of things that are just kind of coming to mind. Yeah. And then, I mean, ultimately I go to the the source, you know, the source materials like Rumi, you know, going back to those kind of ancient wisdom books, you know, there's a, a book of dialogues with this Indian mystic that I refer to actually in, in my use of Path to Awakening and the Sargadatta Maharaj. And he never really wrote anything, but the, the dialogues are really interesting. And the, the threads that I pulled out of, of, in terms of that relate to creativity, are amazing in that book I think it's called I am that Hmm. and so I love that book for sure awesome well thank you Albert and thank you for this conversation today thank you for your work and where is the best place for people to find you to connect with you to read your work and yeah attend your classes all of that yeah, so albertflynndesilver.com is the main website. We have a, a free webinar offering. We're doing some some free coaching for your listeners, for people who really, who have a book project and they want to get into it. They can reach out and, and connect with us. We're really excited to, to support people on this journey. Mm-hmm. And so thank you so, so much for having me on your, your podcast, a real delight. 
Yeah. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode and thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend and tell them what inspired you. Or if you'd be so kind, you can rate and review the podcast. And when you do, I would love to gift you my free guided writing meditation that will connect you to your creativity, yourself, and your spirituality. Just go on over to my Instagram at Leah Van Doren. That's L-E-Y-A-V-A-N-D-O-R-E-N and send me a screenshot of your review and I will send over the meditation and I would love to hear your thoughts. Stay inspired, stay creative, and keep shining your creative soul.